Welcome to the Extra Dimensional Life, the podcast of Extra Dimensional Wine Co. Yeah. We are your hosts, Kate Graham and Hardy Wallace, and this podcast is produced by James Joyner. Our guest on today's episode is one of California's most influential winemakers, Pax Mayer. Pax is the owner of Pax Wines, as well as his newest venture, Halcon Estate. In this episode, we talk with Pax about the various inflection points throughout his 25 years as a winemaker, about the importance of serving as an incubator for other winemakers, and yes, we chat a bit about his and Hardy's love for improvisational music. Enjoy this episode of The Extra Dimensional Life. Hello, here we are. This is The Extra Dimensional Life. We are your hosts. Kate Graham. And Hardy Wallace. And we have today our special guest, none other than the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. <laughs> Pax Mele. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. There are people I have in my phone on speed dial that are the people like when the shit hits the fan that you know that you can call. Not only that, but you know that they'll... They have been there for you, and they will be there for you. And Pax, you're at the top of that list. Because when we really think of getting started in this business, you know, for us about 15 years ago, um, one, you were someone whose wines I drank before I actually ever moved to California. I drank your wines, loved your wines, and that was starting in the Pax, the first Pax days, and then all of a sudden experiencing wind gap and things. And then getting to actually meet the person behind it, it was just this incredible connection, I think, of where people in their artwork, people in their creativity come together and you understand it so much better. And then you're like, wow, that person's just actually amazing. And I'm glad that we have become friends. I'm glad too. The amount of times, I think, from 2011, helping you and Ryan helping move, you know, kind of under the cover of <laughs> darkness. Move. This is my favorite story. We, we were talking about this in the kitchen the other day. Oh my and I was God. like, do you remember the time oh. that Pax and Ryan showed up in, I think it was the Arnett Roberts truck? Fire the Arnett Roberts truck. To move all of the concrete eggs. And the barrels from St. <laughs> like, Helena to Sebastopol or to I Brayden. I was still yeah. in the days of like, I don't know about this whole project thing that we're doing. And these guys are showing up to help us move. It was, it was. I don't know if we really ever thanked you enough for that, yeah. actually. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think going back to our early days. I mean, at the time, it probably was like a fun adventure. It's even a better story. <laughs> Well, going up, and I think yeah, it was like, do we actually take do you actually take these eggs up and over that. like Mark West Springs? Yeah. We'll go around the long way. And <laughs> it just so I just just I'm saying this to set up for folks that are listening that um, Pax is an incredibly special human being that has been both uh, someone that I would consider a huge inspiration, friend, helper to help not just folks like. Kate and myself get started, but so many people in the wine industry. And that's a beautiful thing to see where the world of wine for a lot of folks is, especially on the production side, is, hey, you know, it's almost like working a kitchen, like bust your butt working for me and uh, just figure out and do, do something else when you quit. And you have been 
almost more than anyone I know, someone that has fostered and someone that has groomed and brought people up in a way that have gone on to have incredible winemaking careers. And there's no one else that really, it's kind of like if you go through like, you know, the school of packs winemaking, like you kind of come out on another side and I think that's a really beautiful thing to see. But before we jump into that, we'll get there. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about, you know, just, it's a story you've told before, but for people that don't know the kind of the origin story of you coming out here, making your first vintage, and we should say too that this is vintage 25. This is the silver year. If I make it to harvest, (laughs) yes, it will be 25. (laughs) So this is like, this is no, (laughs) you know, this... New up-and-coming producer at 25 years in. <laughs> Overnight success. Exactly. <laughs> here you are. But if you could take us, you know, really from kind of coming out here in that short story of a long life. Um, does that make sense? The short <laughs> <story>? Yes. <laughs> if we could just kind of hear a little bit about that, and we'll bring people up to speed with what's happening today, what's exciting, and all that good stuff. Well, <clears throat> you know, this story is much better told after a bottle or two of wine, but be that as it may. Um, you know, I was fascinated with wine, you know. Um, I, I did start in the restaurant industry. My first job was washing dishes. I was around food and, and wine um, in, in, in that capacity in every, every job I had. And so, you know, when I was 18, I was working in a, 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 a high-end restaurant on Nantucket Island, and the waitresses and the waiters would have me sell wine to their tables. I was 18 years old, but I, that's what I did. I read about wine. I'd sneak bottles of wine, and I mean, you know, it wasn't, I was, you know, but, you know, probably not all that, you know, sophisticated with my selections, but... Um, but yeah, I, I, I was always fascinated with wine. And so when I was a sommelier for years on Nantucket Island and and moved to California, I was the wine director for Dean and DeLuca, working with a couple of, of friends and kind of created my own job as the corporate wine director uh, and then um, kind of had the job kind of pulled out from under me um, and was kind of looking for what my next step was going to be. And um, again, long story short, eventually found somebody to give me a little bit of cash, you know, had some vineyards kind of lined up, uh, had some winemaker friends that I'd met through my days at Dean and DeLuca and kind of socially that were going to help me make the wine. And, um, you know, we didn't really have a name for it yet. Um, I was just going to be because I was had been selling my wine my entire life and uh, not my entire life, my entire working life and and you know kind of had this idea that we were going to you know kind of you know John Albin and uh, Adam Tolmack and Manfred Crankle was really you know zooming onto everybody's you know radar and. You know, I just thought that somebody should be doing that with Syrah and Rhone grapes in the northern part of California, whereas people were doing it so well in the southern coast, and the northern coast wines just kind of stuck out to me at Dean and DeLuca. I guess I should back up a second, because at Dean and DeLuca, my job was to, um, you know, focus entirely on California wine. 
I had only I didn't really know much about California at the wine at the time and kind of lied my way in to get that job. I remember saying something about Rutherford Dust during my interview, like, oh, yeah, Nailed Rutherford it. Dust. Nailed yeah, like, oh. yeah, anyways, had no real idea. And so but so, so in, order for, in order for the Dean and DeLuca wine department to make sense to me, it was like, well, where is Puyak? You know, where is where is, uh, you know, uh, where where's the Merlot growing in clay that it's cool? Where's the Cabernet growing in gravel? Where is, you know, the Chardonnay growing in chalk? You know, so just kind of those kind of things are kind of how my brain worked in order to kind of figure out these kind of you know where to purchase wine from, and 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 kind of thought that California Syrah was there were you know. Uh, Steve Edmonds, obviously, uh, Michael Havens, Nyers. I was infatuated with early's Nyers Syrahs. And um, and so, you know, the idea was to start a little brand. Um, and like, you know, like we'd talk to our friends or we'd talk to people and be like, well, we don't really have a name yet. And they're like, well, it says PAX on, you know, the side of that. I'm like, oh, that's just because that's my name. And I when I ordered it, they wrote my name on it so they knew where to deliver it. And they're like, well, you should call it PAX. I'd be like, well, that's my name. Like, why would I call the winery my name? That's a horrible idea. And eventually it was kind of like, it became the only idea we had. It's like, just like Prince. Just <laughs> like, only need, only need one. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, yeah, it's, my name has served me well. It's true. Um, and so, you know, when we were putting the winery together, um, I had two friends that were the winemakers and we had vineyards that we had selected and they'd helped me with that and, you know, I'd been traveling the world and tasting wine in cellars all over France and Europe and whatnot and kind of had a idea of what I wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. And, you know, the first day we picked our first grapes, uh, they were from Contra Costa County. It was some Syrah and some Petite Syrah uh, and a little bit of Old Vine Vimouved. And they came into the winery and the consulting winemaker, you know, like, you know, we destemmed the grapes and we added some uh, dealkalized wine and we added some enzymes and we added some um, yeast and like, you know, it was very selective on these particular yeast strains that he was choosing and this, that, and the other. And I was like, well, why are we doing all of this? You know, like, don't we just like let it ferment? Like, isn't that how it works? And, and, uh, they're like, no, this is how you make wine in California. And I was like, oh, okay. And like, what is this stuff? Oh, this breaks it down in this. And I'm like, okay, well, what about this? Oh, well this, you know, brings this in about, I'm like, oh, okay. Well, interesting. So I, you know, I had all of my friends there, you know, on the sorting table, drinking wine. You know how this was when we were excited about this stuff. Back, remember that. And and um, and everyone was naked. <laughs> Just hardy. If, if only. If only. And and so, you know, I went home and was just kind of like, oh, not really feeling super great about how my first kind of wine that we were making for this brand that I was going to be selling was kind of coming together. And I was a little kind of surprised by it and whatnot. And fast forward to a week later when the next vineyard needed to be picked, I decided to uh, not tell the winemaker, winemakers, that I was going to be picking the vineyard, brought the grapes into the winery, brought a bottle of tequila for the cellar guys, a couple cases of beer, told them to set the boxes in the corner and choose the tank and that I was going to go and hop in the bins, crush them with my feet. They were going to pick them up with a forklift or show me how to drive a forklift and dump the grapes into the tank. And then we were going to let it ferment without adding anything to it. And um, that was the day I became a winemaker. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it wasn't, 
I held winemakers in such high regard. You know, I was, I would, I would sit there and talk to you about, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Patterson up on Sonoma Mountain, or you know, like whoever it was. You know, like uh, whether we're talking about somebody in Europe or or California. You know, I. I, I held winemakers in such high regard. They were like magicians to me or like, you know, uh, wizards, you know. And um, I never thought that I would actually, I had the, you know, ability or capability to, to do it myself. And so um, I guess I kind of still feel that way. <laughs> Believe it or not. Well, it's a great thing that you, maybe that you feel that way. But not that others feel that way about you. It's uh, well, a level of uh, being humble. But at the same point, the work you've done over the past 25 years has um, obviously shown the exact opposite of that. I, I heard a great quote the other day. It said, uh, stop being so humble. You're not that great. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was... No, that's a good... <laughs> so we have this, you have this experience where uh, you move and yeah, you, you see... Um, from what you've kind of witnessed in California wine to actually what you want to produce are always radically different. And what you produced at that point then has become legendary. And there is a kind of like a rocket ship launch of your wine specifically kind of in a time where California wine and California Syrah world is taking off. Like yes. you're, you are... <clears throat> You're holding on to the reins. Yes. You're, you know, steering part of that conversation, especially here in the North Coast, yeah. where, you know, like you said, whether it was in the days of Albin, Sinequanon, and that world, so much was happening in yes. Santa Barbara, Paso, that world. But you really, you know, for here, for Northern California, kind of launched this whole kind of, you know, really focus on it, not just Rome, but like this, like of like Syrah at the highest level. Yes, and that. To see that all of a sudden go and evolve from someone, as you mentioned, that just started making wine recently, like that's inspiring to me. It's inspiring, I think, for any folks that are listening that are like, oh my gosh, like this is something where um, sometimes having that feel and that that ability and confidence to know um, what you don't want to do yeah. and what trend you want to buck yeah. um, leads to this incredible path. And this path has had a few iterations. So you've had, you know, kind of that first early pack stage, um, those wines were s different than the last, you know, yes. few years of packs. So yes. you had that transition from almost, you know, still beautiful, bigger style of, of wines. And then talk about that drift into, um, you know, from, you know, some of that cuvées, but almost into that magic world and into that, like, because th that was, you know, vineyard sites being slightly different, yep. expressions being different. What what was that like for, like, what did that switch feel like for you? And um, <clears throat> if you can describe that, that process. Well, you know, first of all, it's very important to, to say that, you know, from in those, you know, we're, we kind of refer to it as the 1.0 era, you know, very proud of those wines, you know, they're, very proud of... They're still amazing. Yeah, very proud of, um, you know, Duncan was with me at that point, Ryan was with me, and have the highest uh, 
respect and regard for what we were doing and what we created and what we put into bottle. Um, with time, um, I began to believe that we could continually improve upon that in, in, in heading in the direction that I started heading, never to kind of um, say that what we had done initially wasn't great. Um, because I do, I had, a, I had an O2 the other night and it was, it was really, really lovely. Um, you know, it was my favorite wine I'd made in 2002 and it's still my favorite wine from 2002. Have there been some, you know, unsuccessful wines in any given vintage a lot throughout the vintages, of course. And, you know, those wines are maybe not have been that good, you know, and maybe will never be that good. But, you know, when, you know, like you said, 25 years, 25 bottlings per vintage. I mean, I don't know the math on that, oh but God. that's a lot of fucking wine. So much wine. <laughs> anyway, can, can we actually can we actually square root that and come out like it's like man. <laughs> so at any rate, you know, we we what started happening, and, and you know, I would sit on a panel and and I would say like you know like you know well Castelli Night Ranch is you know south of Healdsburg and planted in orange hair clay and and it's 100 percent whole cluster and you know if Thierry Alamon or Jean-Louis Chave was making this wine, it would also be 15.5% alcohol because that's what it is here. Um, and then started, you know, kind of really reflecting on that reality. And it's like, well, maybe they would pick it at that, but maybe they wouldn't put, maybe they would put one or two less new oak barrels on it packs, or maybe they would, you know, maybe in this vintage they would do this. And so, you know, it was just a, it was a, it was a kind of crawl towards, um, it wasn't hot pursuit. It was a crawl, um, and, uh, of just trying to improve what you're doing every single day. Right. And, and I think what happened was 2005 happened and 2005 was this, and, and I would go, you know, I'd pull up in my, my four door Volkswagen Golf with my bike rack on the top, and I'd pull up to the oh, somebody's house, and I'd be like, "Hi, I'd like to buy eighty thousand dollars worth of grapes from you," and they'd be like, "Well, who are you, and what are you doing?" and and um, and I would always say, "Well, you know, we're trying to make these like you know like European inspired wines. They're you know we do make them the way they were made hundreds of years ago, and you know we we're looking for really ripe grapes at twenty two bricks, and you know picking them at twenty four, twenty five, twenty six, you know, but but." What happened in 2005 was we were walking these vineyards and it was late in the season and these grapes were exactly what I had been telling all these people I'd been looking for all along, these incredibly ripe grapes that were loaded with fruit and depth and concentration and totally ripe flavors at a low sugar. And so 2005 kind of forced the hand and we bottled are the best wines we had made to date and that was the paradigm shift. It was... You know, and I remember in 2004, we had, you know, like the experimental, you know, like we picked it at 22 bricks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and in 2004, that was, that was hard, you know, that was people thought I was insane, um, you know, and, and at, at this point we'd already had, we, you know, magic, our first vintage of magic vineyard was just a one acre vineyard out on the Sonoma coast, very coastal, very cold, tiny little backyard vineyard. That is tiny in in size and monumental 
in in how it's changed my perception and I believe probably others as well on what ripeness actually is and what is what it, what it, what is the purpose of 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 this and so you know with 2005 you know um the wines were we were they forced our hand to kind of to for for that to make the wines of that style naturally higher in acid naturally lower uh in alcohol and then as we started progressing and i would say well wow this wine was picked at you know 23 bricks and this much acidity and it is so much better than this wine that was picked at 26 bricks and watered back to 23 and given acid to match that. So even even though the chemistry on both of those wines are exact, were the same, one naturally in the field and one in the cellar, the one that came in that way was in a different league. And so then this started the conversation, like, why don't we start looking at the chemistry of the grapes a little bit more and stop doing what every single person and every other winemaker in California is doing and just making these adjustments in the cellar? Why don't we do what these heroes of ours have been doing and pick these grapes at a better, more balanced kind of chemistry? And we started doing that, and the wines were just, I felt like we found our stride. You know, Eric Asimov had his opening tagline for an article he did was, "What's the difference between a case of herpes and a case of hmm. of, of of Syrah? You can get rid of a case of herpes." And so this wasn't really we didn't really feel that we didn't we weren't really a part of this kind of thing, but it definitely became a self fulfilling prophecy. In Syrah, the bottom did fall out of the market. And so we had a look inward uh, at the Pax brand and like say like, well, these are the brand these are the the ten wines that get the most publicity, the most, the highest scores, you know, this, that, and the other, those also happened to be the wines that I was least interested in. And so what happened was, is we were culling, you know, all of these cool coastal Syrah vineyards that were, we were able to pick at this, you know, magical chemistry and make these really great wines at, um, and so we culled them from the Pax brand and I was like, somebody should, come along and grab all these vineyards and start a brand that's focused on coastal Syrah. And there was also this thing like, oh, you know, the problem with Syrah in California is it says Syrah on the label. You don't know what you're going to get. You know, you don't know if it's going to be Australian in style, Shiraz, or you don't know if it's going to be lean and whole cluster. And you don't know. And it's like, everybody's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Which, I mean, you know, like if you look at a bottle of Rombauer and you look at a bottle of Ravino, there's nowhere on there that says that one of them is going to taste different than the other, by the way. When, when we started that when we were, when I was saying somebody should come along and grab these, I'm like, they, you know, they should name it after like a, the coldest part of California, like the Petaluma Wind Gap and like focus on other grape varieties from that area. And then like one day I was like, shit, maybe that should be me. Uh, and so, you know, we started the Wind Gap brand to complement what we were doing at the PAX brand, not to compete with it, uh, to complement it. And, um, and then, you know, we had uh, legal issues with our partner, and, and, and then that was two years of battling, and that was over. Um, and, then, um, and then we restarted the PAX brand in 2010 and um, to complement what we were doing at WinGap. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, um, and then we ended, ended up selling WinGap in 2017, and 
that's a whole another story. But the the whole evolution, and so you know, like there's these 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 poor vineyards, you know, have gone from you know starting out as a Pax wine, going to Wind Gap, backed under the Pax label. But you know, it's like we've been working with some of these vineyards for 25 years, and um, and I think every year I'm like, this is the best one we've ever made, and and sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong. But, um, you know, it's so funny because at the time when I was promoting Wind Gap, I would talk about how different the wines were. But now when it's all in the rearview mirror, they're not all that different. They've always been whole cluster. You know, they've maybe there's a little less extraction. I mean, you know, it's like I think the biggest difference is like, oh, it's just like anything else. When, when I started PAX, I was... 27, 28 years old. And um, you do things differently when you're 27, 28. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. Which just, I mean, I think that's the fairest yeah. thing I can say about it. Everybody wants to be very um, profound about like these big, you know, earth changing, like stylistic changes. But it's all, it all comes down to the human factor. I mean, you know, when I was 27, I was going to, I mean, you know, I, every year I would go to the Rhone Valley. I was spending time with the Gagal Estate and their vineyards and, you know, tasting through their barrels and talking to them about, you know, how long they're aging their wood and this, that, and the other, you know. And then I started visiting other people and talking about, you know, how green are the stems when you use them? And then we start talking about, you know, like Fudra. And then, you know, so, you know, it's, I think it's, I think it, I think it's just the, the human element that that is the constantly the, the only constant is is the the changing and the evolution to try to continue to improve upon what you've done and i think one thing that's after listening to that um one of the cool things and it's again one of the parts where i just again i'm so always just in awe of the work that you've done has been from the start you came out and you made a big splash with the wines you were producing. 2000, and that was kind of a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back then, then 2005, here's another major shift. And I don't think if you love Syrah in California, and especially the style that um, now it's not just you, but that tons of people are known for. Like that is the tipping point right there. That is something that didn't really exist right um and so you had a moment in the early 2000s had a moment in 2005 what you then continued through wind gap and then also balanced out at that same time with some of the other um the pax 2.0 but some of the early parts of that and have continually evolved and as uh one as a fan as a fellow winemaker to see someone do that with one variety is massive to see that you can dance on all sides of the spectrum and really like back like a better terms like truly grok like this variety in all the places it's so cool but you do it with a lot of varieties like that is the part that's the magic where you're like oh and not just magic the vineyard but that is the magic that is pax is that this work that you do extends whether it was Pinot Noir, whether it's Chenin Blanc, whether it's Trousseau Gris, whether it's Pulsard, whether it's everything you have touched, you've been able to put 
that TLC, that level of experience, humility, um, and then that wisdom behind it to like launch so many of these different varieties or champion so many of them in a way that shifts the market. It shifts the, the way consumers approach them. It shifts the way that sommeliers approach them, that other winemakers see them. And, you know, 25 years of winemaking is, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's a blip in the thousands of years. But there's a lot of shifts that you've made for California wine in yeah. this period of time. <clears throat> and I mean, the story's still being written. Yeah. But in that space to see that many, that many shifts um, that I think have moved this ship and moved this industry in a really beautiful way... Um, and it's really impressive. And Thank it's you. Really, yeah. And none of those vineyards have been your own. No. Until no. recently. Very recently. Yeah. And Esther just wrote a great piece for those of you that haven't read it yet in the San Francisco Chronicle. Highly suggest reading it. Um, and maybe this is a good segue for you to tell us a little bit about Halcone and that project and sort of where yeah you are with that. So now, so yeah, I mean, you know, um, you know, I hate terms like the silver lining of COVID, but you know, this idea, this dream, this kind of seed was definitely planted. Um, you know, we had our little bubble of people, uh, during COVID where we would, you know, sneak over to somebody's house and have a all-night pool party, you know, um, because we had been locked up in our house for so many months. And and um, Halcon had come on the market, and, and um, Baron and I were having this conversation about, you know, like, you know, so many great wines had been made from it, and, like, if we were to, you know, like, what who should buy it and, like, what's going on with it and who, like, what, what's going to happen to the grapes, and it would be great to, you know, and like, well, like, what would, what would, what's like, what do we think that would be the perfect thing to happen with that? And we, 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 we both agreed that, you know, like, and this isn't a something that's, you know, unique to, only it's unique to California, and, and not even that much of that in that regard. But to have an estate that produces one wine and doesn't bring in grapes from anywhere else, and just is just one vineyard, one estate. You know, uh, Raj and Sashi have done it down in the Central Coast. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, countless of these examples in the old world. Um, but, you know, in California, it's relatively, I guess it's not, the, man, I don't know, you could prove me wrong. But it always seems that there's the focus of, uh, the focus of most winery estates is, you know, they have it's a, it, they have to make money, and so you have to have like a this kind of rounded out kind of, you know, formula or 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 platform that you can, you know, it's balanced and it's profitable, you know, and so you know this needs to be profitable, of course, you know, neither, no, none, nobody that I'm, yeah, it has to make money, but the goal, of course, of this of the brand is to is to emphasize and just focus on having one estate that's making one wine. And so um, Halcon is a, an exceptional vineyard in California. It's kind of kind of took the world by storm in regards to it being so unique and the 
The flavor profile of it was unlike anything else that people had tasted from California, and that's because it is unlike anything else in California. Its soils have a lot more in common with some very big-name vineyards in not in California. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, I had a rep- reputation for liking Syrah and making a pretty good one <laughs> on occasion. And so it kind of made sense that maybe, you know, if I partnered with somebody that could sell the stuff, you know, that had, that was, you know, if you guys know Baron, I mean, he's, you know, always on, you know, he's the, the world's greatest entertainer. He's just like, you know, where I want to like hide in the corner, you know, it's like, you know, it's like Baron and I's relationship is, you know, it's like, we're, we're cooking dinner and then we're doing this. And I'll be like, oh, I don't think I'm going out tonight, you know? <laughs> like, I'm like, taking a nap. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and that's a lot has, you know, that, I mean, so, so yeah, we make the wine at, at the, at the wine, at the, at the Pax Winery in Sebastopol. Um, but it's bottled as Halcon and Halcon is not a Pax wine. It's a, it's a separate thing. And so, um, yeah, Esther, we went to lunch and, and, um, you, know, you always want to do this and you always kind of don't want to do this, but, you know, you order, you know, the big famous great wines of the world that are of the same grape variety and you pour them next to your wine and you're like, hey, look, you know, <laughs> we're okay too. <laughs> so, um, so we did that and, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's great. It's, uh, you know, it's tough, you know. It's out there. It's a lot. Of, yeah, the wine's it, out there now. Um, well, it, oh, both, the vineyard. Both the wine out oh, there. Yeah, it's yeah. all out there. The wine, yeah, yeah, the vineyard. No, yeah, no, it is It is a trek. Um, nobody used to, in the, the first year or two, everybody was like, oh, yeah, you're going, how can I want to go with you? Now, now no one's now, asking. Now, <laughs> now it's, you know, me with my headphones, no shirt out there, like hoeing and all by myself. Like nobody... Nobody wants to take the drive up the road. Nobody wants to take 128. Nobody wants to go up that dirt road. Nobody wants to, I mean, we don't have any shelter. We don't have any shade. And a lot of wind. (laughs) Oh, it's so windy. I mean, I buy like three easy ups a year. I don't know where they go. They just like fly away. (laughs) Like I'll like, like, yeah, like I bought these like, Four foot spikes and the sledgehammer, and I was like, "All right, this motherfucker's staying in the ground." No, no, yeah, no. It's uh, it's it's a challenge, you know. Our um, our permit was revoked when we were building a some a, a little house, little property for us, and so we're trying to fighting that. And it's just uh, you know, it's the top of a mountain. It's um, it's a great place for Syrah, but it's uh, it's a it's a tough place uh, for everything else. Yeah, it's um. <laughs> It is an extreme spot, and but I think with that, it falls so well into what you do best. And what it is is finding spots that defy typicity, and yeah. they aren't just the... They're not the best of their class. They're in a totally class all, class all on their own, and it's kind of... Any chef will tell you, any anybody that makes anything, it's like you're only as good as the quality of the ingredients that you're using, and I know this sounds like the back of a postcard, but... It's true. And like, you know, you're only as good as what you have. So, um, so that, you know, call it a secret, but it's like, you know, good vineyards make good wine. 
So one of the things we mentioned early, earlier, and it's just been really one of the beautiful things to see, is that not only you as a winemaker, but you as an incubator for yep. a lot of careers that have really taken off. Yeah. So from the early days, Duncan from yep. Arnett Roberts, Ryan and from Rhyme with he and his wife, Megan, uh, you've got Scott from Jolie Led, you've got Rosalind, you've got a bunch of others as well. Yep. Uh, Chad Chili Hines. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's Jamie, yeah. Jamie yeah, Motley. Yeah. Like, you have this crew, and all of those folks have gone on not just to make wines that are like, oh, like, make good wines. They all make wines that have their own voice. Yeah. Is that something that you've encouraged, or how, how does that happen in your cellar um, where people have that freedom to really... Well, to dance. Yeah. Well, a couple of things. Um, it's by far the best thing that I do, right? It is the most rewarding. It's the most, um, it's the one that, I mean, when we nail a Chenin Blanc, it's great. But when I taste Jamie's Chenin Blanc, I'm like, that's fucking great. You know, I'm like these people's biggest cheerleader, you know? Like I did some, interview recently and they were talking about like Claude Rougeard and you know I'm like aren't it Robert's Cabernet Franc's the best Cabernet Franc like hands down you know it's like I'm the biggest cheerleader for these for for these guys but you know it's there's two there's not, not two types of people there you know there's the type of people that are open and want to see other people succeed and then there's the type of person that believes that the only way they can succeed is by making sure that nobody else does. Um, and I don't like those people that much. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, winemaking is a very imperfect thing. Um, even, you know, when we were first learning about wine and reading our, you know, Hugh Robinson or Jancis Robbins or... or his last name is Jackman, the Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, him too. <laughs> you know, but you know, when we were reading these books, you know, you, you kind of picture this like kind of this idealist or idealistic kind of like re world, and the reality is it's a it's a logistical nightmare and trying to get fruit delivered on time and all of this stuff. And so, with my first with Duncan, kind of my first assistant, you know, he was making a tiny bit of wine in the basement of of the house, their house in Healdsburg, and. You know, they were, I told them they could make it the winery in the space, and and um, and you know the reality is like if somebody has to leave the building to go make their wine somewhere else, or if they have the desire to make wine somewhere else, you know it's like oh I'll just run over there and like receive the fruit. It's going to be there at ten, <laughs> and I'll be back by eleven thirty. Well. 10 in the morning, back at 11.30 at night. <laughs> so the reality yeah. is I, I was just kind of like, you know, I'd much prefer, you know, to you just to do everything here. And that way, while we're waiting for your truck, we can, you know, like, you know, focus on the things that, you know, we're paying you to do and, and we can kind of figure things out and, you know, make things available to people that they otherwise wouldn't have, you know, available or access to grapes or distribution friends or 
wine writers or, you know, whatever it is. But um, I think, I think that I was looking for a certain type of person and that type of person is the type of person that wanted to be creative and make their own thing. And so I was, so yeah, so I mean, you know, it's kind of like we kind of were attracted to each other in that regard. Um, and, um, you know, the goal was never to have quite as long a list, but the reality <laughs> is, is everybody starts to, you know, get a little too big, you know, to be, to stay forever, you know, in, and, and never was it really in my shadow. We were kind of like standing side by side is the way I kind of see it. We're not, they're not working for me. They're working with me. You know, we're definitely, uh, um, you know, we're all doing the same things, but, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I, I mean, and I, and I really do in looking at what are the, what are the best things I've accomplished? Those are the best things. Yeah. The other reason I was doing it probably is, is, you know, something you said before. I mean, it was a rocket ship at first, you know, it was a lot of intense scrutiny, a lot of, um, a lot of financial, fast financial success, a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, quasi fame, you know, like, you know, getting invited into like, like, you know, we want you to be a member of the Bohemian Grove. I'm like, I'm, <laughs> what's that? I'm 29. And, and so, you know, so I think it was just kind of a way to, for me to kind of ground myself because I felt like, you know, I didn't deserve all of the stuff that was, I was getting and it was scary and I didn't believe it. Um, I didn't trust it, and so I needed something that I could kind of know was mine. So thinking back to trust and thinking to kind of the path of nurturing um, and evolution, we've talked from where you've been all the way through mentoring, through Halcone. What's that spark in you like kind of chasing at this moment, um, whether it's varietal based, whether it's feeling based, emotional. Like, let's, can you share a little bit about kind of the evolution that you're going through now? Well, I think it's driven by anger. You know, <laughs> I th I think the world of California wine has changed dramatically in the last five years. Social media, the end of a couple of reigns of you know, you know, uh, of kind of some king makers that are no longer kind of driving the market. But this, this, this drive or this push for, you know, everything to, all this bio, all this diversity to be pulled out of California and to be replaced with more Pinot Noir and Cabernet and Chardonnay made me angry. I mean, downright angry. And so, you know, like, you know, do my banker and my wife think that we should, you know, be bottling some Pinot Noir? Probably, you know, but I mean, California has plenty of Pinot Noir. Like, why don't, why don't we, why don't we plant Gamay? Lots of Gamay. Plant Gamay all over. Let's see, let's, like, let's, like, let's, and I don't want Gamay to be the next big thing, just like I don't want Syrah to be the next big thing. I just want to have, California is a very big place. You know, from, I mean, you know, 
if we if the two of us are in New York, you know, yeah, we both live in Sonoma, but it took me an hour to get here, right? I mean, you know, it's uh, it's Sonoma is a huge place. Sonoma is a very big it's, place. It's, I mean, most people don't realize it's like the Texas of wine country. <laughs> it's like you know, three hours from right. like one corner to the next. And people and, talking about vintages or or what should be planted in California. What it's like what is the what does that even mean? Like California, like what are we talking? The California that's four hours north of me or the California that's eight hours south of me or the California that's four hours east of me. I mean, so that 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 makes me angry. It makes me angry that when we talk about vintages that it's like, well, Napa Cab, it's a great vintage for Napa Cab. I was like, what the fuck does that have to do with, you know, us on the Sonoma Coast or whatever or Shalone Appalachian or something? You know, it's just like and so you know, they're, just so you know, they're all good vintages in the Shalom Apple. There you go. There we go. There you go. <laughs> always. I had a feeling. Uh, I was. I have had always. A, I had a feeling. Um. So, so yeah. I mean, I think it's just like, you know, like I and, tr- and here's the ironic part. You know, it's uh, I drink more Chardonnay than probably any other grape variety. Uh, uh, you know what I mean? It's like. I fucking love Chardonnay. It's I mean, wonderful. I don't love bad Chardonnay, but I don't like bad movies either. You know, well, that's not true. I don't like bad movies, but but you know, dude, it, where's my car? Is <laughs> legendary. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> I can't afford Dovisat really anymore. I can't afford Ravino that much anymore. But man, I can afford Arnett Roberts. Uh, you know, the, whether it's the South Napa one or the Santa Cruz one, you know, they're making great Chardonnay. We need more of that. You know, we need more Chenin Blanc in California that is like the wines that I like. You know, of course I want more of that because it's what I like. You know, <laughs> you know, do we need more, you know, um, I don't drink that much Burgundy. Um, that's not to say if you want to open a nice bottle of Burgundy with me, I want to open it with you. Uh, no, it's just, you know, it's, it's um, I was so consumed with, you know, every little, the minutia of Burgundy and Pinot Noir and would never have even dreamed that California wine could kind of even come close to standing up against it, you know, 20 years ago. But now I think that, you know, there's great bottles, not that there's great bottles of California Pinot Noir. You know, there's incredible bottles of California Syrah that stand up to the, the ones in the rest of the world. I'm trying to get more things planted in the right soils, and whether it's Chenin or whether it's Gamay or whether it's Trousseau Noir, whatever it is. Um, diversity. Diversity is what I want to see more of because California is so diverse. California's weather is so diverse. Our soils are so diverse. You know, you, you can map out of like the country of France in California's Appalachians. You know, they're not going to line up exactly, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. We're not France. We are California. We have plenty of things to be proud of. We are not a one-trick pony. We are not a Chardonnay, Pinot Noir. And and so that's the anger that was driving me to want to, 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 to keep pushing forward in that regard. And I, I think that's a, I definitely feel that, um, that anger, that, of that tension that's there. And I think that's one of the really most important things for, and we mentioned this on another show, where that idea that California wine in so many ways is um, 
is kind of underrepresented. Yeah. And that is not, you know, you, you could be at, you know, whether it's restaurants in California at the absolute highest levels, yep. that the percentage of California wine on that list, on those lists, is really small. Yes. And, um, or it's only a specific yeah, it may be a group spe- of California wine. If those vegetables are coming out of your own garden, you know, th- you know, three blocks away, yeah. um, wouldn't it be pretty great if, um, you know, the Chenin Blanc you were serving was, you know, wasn't from 7,000 miles away right. or this, when, right. it's, when it stands at that level. Right. And it doesn't have to be a mimic. It doesn't have to be an imitation of that. Yeah, it can derivative, be, yeah. It, it can be something that is beautifully its own from that place. And again, that goes back to the parts where I'm like, what you do so well from all of these varieties is you put them at a level that is, again, it's, it's, they don't necessarily have to even rhyme with what you know we see as the classics. They're just on a level that is beautiful, that is yours, that is their own. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Right on, right on, right on. Thank you. Thank you. Somebody gets it. (laughs) Some dude. As my, uh, as as the one person that gets it, you just need to buy more wine. Exactly. (laughs) Seriously, we all do. We all do. We can't get this far and not talk about fish and music and the role that I think it plays in both of your lives. Yeah. And Hardy often talks about um, wine and music, sort of music scratching the same itch as wine. And I would love it. I can't even imagine how many shows combined the two of you have gone to over the course of your lives. But um, I would love it if you would talk a little bit about um, music for you, Pax. So... Music is 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 the right way to put it, and um, I'm not a religious person. I am a spiritual person, but I feel like pushing your musical taste on other people is like putting your political taste or your religious kind of thing. I think everybody has their own relationship with music, and and I certainly do and in music is I mean I have a hard time with podcasts because I want to listen to music (laughs) and so like I have this rule like when I go to pick up grapes I'm in my truck like it's music on the way out podcasts on the way back Mm -hmm. and um it just kind of it kind of breaks it up and it makes the time shorter and whatnot but um you know for me I I discovered fish through my love of improvisational jazz. And if Miles Davis was touring, I probably wouldn't have seen as many fish shows as I've seen, or if The Dead was touring. I mean, that's the same sort of reason I found The Dead was there. It was, it was The Dead first, and then, and then Fish, of course. But it's the improvisation thing. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the what, it's like, what is the now? What is happening? And I try to like carry that over into my winemaking and just to let myself kind of go with the moment because that moment is the only thing that matters at that point in time. And so I'm not quite as advanced in that as Hardy is in regards to the music and the tasting and kind of... 
I'm kind of more, I'm kind of more, I think more about the construction of the music and the layers and the listening to each other and how a bad, I mean, the, the, the term jam band is like a horrible like thing because it's like natural wine. It just, it, it, yeah, 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 yeah. We should do a jam band natural wine fair. <laughs> you and I would both be there but, by ourselves. But so, you know, this, this horrible um, label of what this concept is, is so far away from what actually good improvisational music is. They couldn't be farther apart. And so it's like listening to each other. And, and, and uh, you know, you see any old videos of Miles Davis, you know, whether it's the Isle of Wight or whatever, and, and it could have been the cocaine. But he was <laughs> definitely, you know, he definitely would spend a good part of the song listening and then he would come up with what he was going to add to it or put on top of it. And I think that that is kind of my role as a winemaker, like listening to what I have. And I, this may sound a little cheesy, but it's just like that, that's how I think of music. I think it's very important to listen and to not solo too much and not to be too loud and not to be too packs, but just to kind of, you know... If this vineyard is 12% alcohol and this vineyard is 15% alcohol, then that's what it is, right? It's like my job is to add to it, but it's not to speak over it. So I'm more on the construction side or the building side when I think of music and, and wine. I would love to... to to do the things that you do and to hear it and to do it. I mean, clearly I have music on when I'm drinking, so it's like I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm totally foreign to the concept. <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I, I mean, music is a huge part of, of our day in the cellar, um, you know, and, and, and it's the right music at the right time. Um, you know, when I'm in a bad mood, People always put fish on, and it just makes me more mad. <laughs> and, and and this is where uh, Kate's friend says it makes you. Sometimes it just makes you feel disorganized. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just it's it's just that's it just doesn't work. You know, there's yeah. a right time. You know, it's like if I'm there on a Sunday and like I give everybody Sundays like the day I work by myself, or I have like somebody come in and help me in the morning, and somebody come and help me in the afternoon. So not, nobody's working in as much time, and it's like you know, it's like. Sundays are Pink Floyd or, or Neil Young, you know, in the morning, and, you know, like, uh, you know, and like Radiohead is like late night, you know, when like the light is cool and like, you know, it's just like we, we have to be here and we just, you know, and then like LCD is like, you know, when, when everything's cleaned up and we're doing t shots of tequila and we're looking for that boost of energy, but it's like, it's just like the, the, the music is just, it just punctuates the day and to chapters and to kind of how we get through every day. And so music, and, and, and to be perfectly honest, everybody knows not to put fish on when I'm mad <laughs> now. And we probably, didn't have, we probably didn't play fish once last year during harvest. And I'm fine with that. I don't, I don't you know, I listen to a lot of things. Um, but, you know, 
I was listening to last night's show mm. this morning on my drive over, and it Mexico. was it was uh, I should have been doing Mango homework song. and listening yeah. to podcasts to make myself sound smarter, but unfortunately, I was listening to fish. Yeah, <laughs> us too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we think of everything from the way that you work with others, the way that you've inspired others, the way that you tend your vineyards, the way that. You've shaped this industry. So much of it comes down to listening. And I think that's an internal and external thing, listening to nature, listening to others, um, their wants, needs, desires. But really it comes down to, I think, in a really beautiful way, listening to your heart Mm. and listening to yourself. And as a fellow winemaker, as a friend, as someone who has been helped and guided by your um, generosity and your brilliance, um, it's just an amazing thing to have you here on the podcast with both Kate and I, and to have you as part of the extra dimensional life. Thank you so much for being here with us. It's a pleasure. Um, I've enjoyed drinking a beer with you while we've done this. Absolutely. And, um, we won't tell anybody it's eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's eight o'clock now. When yeah. we started, it was 6.30 a.m. <laughs> if only. Exactly. Yeah. Well, wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Adios. Adios. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of The Extra Dimensional Life. Today's guest was Pax Maley, and if you'd like more information on Pax and his wines, you may go to www.paxwines.com, and Pax is spelled P-A-X. And for his new venture at Halcone Estate, you can go to www.halcone.com. H-A-L-C-O-N-Wine.com. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we look forward to having you on the next episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever service you listen to your podcasts on, and make sure you leave a review and share the episode with your friends. Thanks so much. We'll catch you next time.